I believe the hymn of encouragement, number 227, number 227, feel free to go ahead and mark that if you would. And at the proper time, in just a moment, we'll stand together and, and hymn uh, that lovely song, number 227. This evening, as we make opportunity to begin our lesson, I'd like to do so with somewhat of an announcement with a degree of gratitude to the congregation. It has to do with the technical equipment that's now at the front of the auditorium. Some time ago, the elders, as well as in the business meeting, made a statement of and somewhat stated an interest in the purchase of not only a computer but a projector as well to make it possible for, for that to be used not only during the lessons, if you please, but also that it could be here and not have to be carried uh, by, by my family or myself. And so that has now been uh, done, and this is the computer and the projector that the church ha has purchased. And so I would hope that we'll find a good usage out of it. And I'd just like to express my thanksgiving and that of my family on the part of the congregation for, for being willing to purchase that. I would hope that as we make use of it, I, my, uh, I should say the PowerPoints themselves are, of course, designed by me. So that's not the fault of the computer or anything like that if that goes awry. But I have found, at least from the comments, that most of them seem to be positive with respect to the blue background and the white overlay. So I have continued to make that same design on, on the PowerPoints themselves. If, it, if ever you have thoughts or some ways that that might be improved, certainly feel free to share that. And if I don't know how to do that, perhaps some of the other computer experts in, uh, here at the Pippin Church would be able to assist me with it. On the Sunday evening lessons, we have for some weeks been looking into the correlation between the Bible on the one hand and the disciplinary subject of science on the other. And in that series of lessons, we already have discussed a number of things, not the least of which has been the interesting idea to set the Bible where it rightfully deserves as the inerrant, authoritative, fundamental standard and also science to where it rightfully is to be placed. Namely, an honorable pursuit of men, but that's precisely what it is. As scientists proceed along the way of discovery and along the way of development of various ideas, whatever those theories in fact are, they must appreciatedly put them, if they are to be wise, under the constriction of the truth of the Bible. Science in its factual character never contradicts the Bible. For in fact, God is the author of both. Could we not notice that, of course, the Holy Spirit penned the Scriptures, as you and I learned this morning, but also notice that in His presentation of the laws of science in the organization of the universe, also as we noted this morning, the Holy Spirit stands firmly behind that as well. But that's nothing more than science. It's no wonder then that there's no disharmony, no disunity based on the facts of science as well as the Scriptures. It's when men present their thinking and their theories and their suppositions that often there is a great disagreement between the Bible and between that of science. Upon making note of that observation, we then turn to explicitly look at first astronomy and then biology. And in both of those disciplines, we came to see a wonderful degree of foreknowledge how that biblical truths that were stated in the Bible touching science were stated long before scientists ultimately discovered and learned some of those very same things. As we continue that series of studies tonight, we will in fact look at geology, 
trying to appreciate what the Bible has to say, at least in some regard, upon that subject of geology. And might I submit that our approach will be similar to that which it has been before, to attempt to place geology in the proper study of what it seeks to find, and then to turn our attention to the Bible. And to ask what the Bible has to say about the subject of geology. As has been the case before, namely both with astronomy and with biology, the Bible had more to say than what I could fit into what I thought was a reasonably linked lesson, and the same will be true of geology. But I do hope that that which we at least consider tonight will be firmly set in our mind and will in fact help us see the tremendous error that is so often taught with respect to geology. And so as we begin our lesson this evening, let's first of all consider the basic idea of what it means to discuss geology. What is that endeavor of study? Sometimes our students, in fact, are commanded, perhaps even encouraged, to study geology. I've noticed in some of Brooklyn's textbooks in not too far distant past that her, some of the chapters in those books even relate to the subject of geology. The basic notion of the word is pretty simple. The first three letters, G-E-O, that's a prefix that has reference to earth. L-O-G-Y, that ending point that was much like it was in the word biology, means discourse or study of, and hence the word itself, geology, means a study of earth. And in that study, one pays particular attention to the composition of earth, to the history of planet earth, to the very nature of what it is that even today characterizes this globe on which we walk. That study of geology makes careful note of a number of specific things like the structure of rocks, how they came about, at least from a scientific standpoint, the nature of what happens if one buries into the earth and the character of the matter at some depth. As we look at all of those particular features, it is nonetheless interesting to see, even in the subject of geology, that it has a very useful impact in some regard on our consideration of this earth. For instance, those who study volcanoes and can at least learn a little bit to give some forewarning to it, then people are able to at least evacuate and to be saved from the destruction that might correspond physically to it. The same is true of a hurricane, perhaps, or even, at least with limited matter, even with regard to, in some instances, an earthquake. But it's still fair to say, geology has so much more that can be learned, so much more to be mastered, it is at this point, though, that we should fairly come to what is the central theme behind virtually all presentations of geology. In fact, I have very rarely ever seen any real statement of moving aside from this as the bedrock of it. I've listed it on that screen as the notion there of evolutionary dogma and the sadness with which it is so often a part of geology I'd like to present a slide that I hope will indicate some of the features of what I mean by that. If you've looked at textbooks recently, a picture perhaps like this will have appeared, but probably in even more detail. So I'd like to present it and then discuss it if in fact we might. Here's a picture of what is typically told to our students as fact. It's called the geologic column. Other books will reference it as the geologic timetable. 
It purports to present to these young, plastic, impressionable minds this detailed and exact history of the entirety of planet Earth. And as we look briefly at this and make some comments, I realize the wording on the left is probably far too small for you to at least read in any detail from where you see it. I hope, though, to at least highlight some of the features of it. This particular geologic timetable I thought was especially useful because it has pictures on the right that you probably can identify even, even from the place where you're sitting. The geologic timescale, the timetable, is designed again to present what scientists in many ways preach and teach as fact, and it stretches the Earth's history out now to well over four billion years, and it shows in what scientists claim as this increasing order of complexity the livelihood and the type of animals that live on this planet. And so let me start, if I might, and point out some of the features of it. First of all, we need to read it from the bottom up as that stretches from the furthest points back in time up to the modern era. And so with that said, you'll notice at the bottom of the screen is this Cambrian or Precambrian era of time. And you can see that the animals that scientists say that were the first to come about, the first that evolved from this single-celled organism that originally existed, were these very simple animals, like trilobites, those whose mental capabilities and brains were exceedingly small and limited. That's what they say was the first kind of life to have evolved. If you'll notice something about the time scale, as it's written in somewhat small print, we must go back well over two billion years, scientists tell us, to have arrived back at that time. Then, as the centuries rolled forward, evolution, so we are told, led to the increasing presence of more sophisticated animals. Well, notice up on the slide some, you get larger animals, like fishes, like somewhat dinosaur kind of animals. You also notice that animals that somewhat more like the insect family. And again, many, many millions of years, so we are told, passed by the time these came into being. The type of names given to that now, we're looking at the Mississippian and the Pennsylvanian era, again, as we are told. But let's go forward again in time. After several more million years, we now arrive at that centerpiece and notice the huge dinosaurs now we are told that came to, to, to evolve. These large animals ruled over things, were able to in fact take care of and do things almost as they pleased. Those rather large animals, ultimately those still would give way to the set at the very top. That tertiary and quaternary period actually leads us to see the kind of animals that were therein present. I might ask you, if you would, though, to make a careful note of where mankind appears. You don't see mankind until the very top. In fact, according to the evolutionary time scale, man is a relatively recent come along. Only about two million years ago, so we are told. As you can see, with animals here billions of years before that, it would be the case, if that were true, that most of the animals that ever lived on the planet, humans never saw. But all that leads us to say, note again the increasing complexity from bottom to top. Note, if you would, the extremely large time scale involved. And also notice, if you would, 
the rather odd kinds of names, if you can, that were given to some of these periods. And again, please take note that according to the scientific scale of things, in this way, man came along only very, very recently. With all those kinds of things stated, may I ask you, though, that to consider with me what the Bible has to say about this and whether or not that is true. Again, might we notice there is not a single geology textbook of which I am aware that does not present something like that. As our students are asked to study it, to learn it, to in fact be able to recite various aspects of it, we're interested to know now what does this book have to say? Does it give scientifically the same information that that does? Or does it teach something vastly different? As we open the scriptures and let them speak for themselves, the answer will be exceedingly clear. I'd like us to make three major points in the remainder of the lesson tonight. Each one will relate to back to this picture, to the comments that we've just made. And so let's look at the first one and try to use the names that our students may have encountered in their classes with respect to it. Strangely enough, these names at the outset are somewhat long, but the idea behind them is very simple. In fact, before I even use the name, let me present what the idea is. There are those who appreciate, and in fact the vast majority of those who are modern geologists, will state that that geologic column that we just looked at is the truth on the subject of geology. They will quickly say in most instances that any reputable geologist will not question that geologic column. They accept it as the way that things actually happen to be. There's a name given to the ideas presented in it. One of those names is the word uniformitarianism. All that long word means is that what one sees now taking place in this world, according to that idea, is what took place in the far distant past. And hence, the present, so we are told, is the key to the past. Thus, if one were to hold up a rock or to set a rock out in the yard, well, we know that the weather and the rain and the other elements will wear it away eventually, but it may not be in my lifetime. It may not be in the lifetime of my children or my grandchildren. And so scientists say that it takes a long time to wear away a rock. As they thus estimate that same idea, and they say, well, for earth to have weathered the way it is, it must have taken billions and billions of years. You see, the idea that's being used, the present, so they say, is the key to the past. The processes that we see taking place now are the same ones that have acted in the same way throughout history to lead to Earth's surface looking the way it does now. In essence, Earth's features were shaped very slowly and very gradually over eons and eons of time. But there is another consideration here. There is a different perspective called catastrophism and it says, let us consider this idea. Could it well be that at perhaps irregular intervals there have been violent forces and upheavals acting upon the surface of earth and that large features perhaps were shaped in relatively short periods of time? Notice the vast difference in the two perspectives. Uniformitarianism says it's going to take a long time to accomplish the current state of what earth's surface appears to be. 
catastrophism says there could have been violent forces that led to much of what we see over a pretty short interval of time. Those are two vastly different perspectives. Which one, I wonder, is better in harmony with the Bible? Which one is in better accordance to the teaching of the Word of God? That geologic time column we just looked at is soundly based on uniformitarianism. However, the Bible teaches catastrophism. Let us highlight some of the thoughts contained in the Word of God that touch this subject. As we do so, let me first of all introduce it by making a comment that probably we each can remember, at least those who are at least 30 years old now or so. In the year 1980, which frankly wasn't too awfully long ago now, a rather violent geologic event took place in this country. It was in the state of Washington. It was the eruption of the volcano known as Mount St. Helens. You may have remembered it was the news story, the major one for many, many days back in May of 1980. When that volcano erupted, I have listed some of the features that we now know took place. Notice at the bottom of that screen, 150 square miles of forest were toppled in six minutes. 150 mile square miles of forest laid utterly bare into the ground in six minutes. Not only that, you'll notice that the energy output, given the nature of the change in that volcanic structure, is now known to be well over 400 million. As you notice, tons of TNT. And as far as, in fact, deposition of structures that we would liken to a rock, 25 feet in thickness of a layer was deposited in a matter of hours. That alone seems dramatic evidence that it doesn't always take long times to accomplish things like laying down rocks and shaping gorges and large features on the surface of earth. It simply doesn't take all that long when the forces are right. That only leads us to see, though, perhaps one other set of comments. It has to do with the Bible itself. If it's the case that the eruption of a single volcano in the state of Washington could have accomplished that, what would a worldwide flood have accomplished? A flood in which literally the great windows of heaven were opened, Genesis 7:11, and the fountains of the deep were broken up. What kind of damage and change could that have affected on the surface of this planet? Do you suppose that could perhaps have etched out a gorge like the Grand Canyon out in the western part of our country? Do you suppose it could have etched out some of the canyons that appear in China? You see the ter terrible and great forces involved. If this little volcanic eruption could have done what we now know that it did, could it not be possible to appreciate what change would have been wrought in the great forces of a worldwide flood. Another verse that I've listed for your consideration highlights that adjective worldwide. There are some who would be quick to tell us that that flood of which we read in the book of Genesis was only a local flood, that it was not a worldwide global event. Might I ask us to notice verse number 20 together in Genesis 7 and let the Holy Spirit identify what kind of flood it was. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. What mountains? All of them. 
water always seeks to flow to its lowest place. The force due to gravity will force that to occur, will it not? And yet that ark that Noah had been told to build was in fact sufficiently stable structurally and in that way of floating that it would in fact have been born above the highest of mountains. That flood was a worldwide global flood. Think about what it would have wrought on this earth with that kind of water pressure, that kind of flood water in fact pouring over the surface. I'd submit that some of those great trenches that we see in places like the oceans may well have resulted from that outpouring of all of that water that God unleashed upon a world taken over in sin. To make those kind of statements about this issue reminds us, let us not give in to that teaching of uniformitarianism. Let us be reminded that the Bible states that God fashioned and made the surface of this planet by and large in the ways that things are now able to be seen. It has not taken nearly the length of time that scientists are so quick to tell us that it has taken. That does lead to yet another thought. The second point, if you will, in tonight's lesson, having to do with the nature of the fossil record of life. If you look back to that picture again, that one that I had just showed briefly earlier, that geologic timetable, we see that increasing complexity, do we not, from simple to complex. However, would it not stand to logically be reasoned that the fossil record should bear out that transition? As one digs deeper in the earth, one should find, if that record is true, fossils from simple organisms, things that were not complicated. But as one comes closer to the surface and one becomes to see so-called time periods that are closer to modern, one should find fossils of more complicated animals, larger animals like the dinosaurs and like modern-day things like the elephants and so forth. The question, is that what you find? Do you find increasing complexity from deeper to, in fact, more near the surface. Most geologists probably wouldn't openly confess, but that's not what you find. In fact, this is what you discover. As archaeologists and paleontologists have buried and looked and searched for the matters of fossils, as they dig deeper, they find the fossils of animals. They find the fossils of the various kinds of creatures that lived in days gone by. And oddly enough, they find things that we recognize today buried deep in the layers of earth. Those animals hadn't changed. One finds a locust today. It looks just like a locust of what they tell us was millions and billions of years ago. The animal hadn't changed. It doesn't sound like evolution has occurred much. And in fact, they are at their wits end to try and describe how can we explain the fact that our column says these things should be. But the fossil record does not substantiate it. If you're aware of the history of much of that, Charles Darwin was the person who began to write most notably about evolution. Even Charles Darwin in his own book admitted, the fossil record does not support my theory. He confessed it. However, his claim was it's only because of the current failure of geology. Given enough time, those fossils will be found. Everything will then be in support of it. My friend, 160 years have now passed. 
as far as I know, every evolutionist will tell you the fossil record's complete, but it still doesn't substantiate it. It still does not lay claim to what we are told ought to be the case. And in fact, to even paint a more puzzling picture for the evolutionist, in that picture we just said, as one digs deeper, one ought to find the fact that there should be more and more types of life the closer you are to the surface. That is, the further you dig into earth, the fewer and fewer kinds of life there ought to be if evolution happened. Isn't that right? However, that's not what you find. What you find as you dig deep into earth is that at that layer that they call the Precambrian layer, there is a sudden explosion of fossil occurrences. There's very few, if any, beneath it. But at the Cambrian level, there's all kinds of fossils, and those fossils match the animals that are alive today. It doesn't sound to me as though there's been much evolution. Those animals appeared by the divine fiat of the creative hand of God, and they have remained upon this planet ever since the great day that God fashioned them. The marvelous character of this record then, that our students are taught as fact is woefully lacking. It does not match the scientific evidence, and it does not match the biblical proclamations either. All of that maybe points us to consider what did the Bible say about the presence of life. In the opening two chapters of the book of Genesis, we read that on days 3 and 5 and 6, God fashioned respectively the plant or vegetable life, and then the life in the seas as well as in the heavens, and finally, the life on land. And in all instances, he said, after his kind. That life, you see, was fashioned by God with reproductive character, but in all reproductive matters, it brought forth after his kind. It's no wonder that you dig in the earth, and if the locust existed then, its fossil is going to look like a locust today. It's still a locust. Now, it may have changed in size, but in terms of it being a locust, that same genus and species in biology, it's still the same. That point is one that sometimes is admitted by those who are more knowledgeable and aware of that kind of information. That does maybe also lead us to see the geologic column in almost all of its particulars is not in harmony with the Bible. It just simply isn't. And that leads us to perhaps the final question of the evening, the question that has to do with the dates that we listed in terms of that column. As I mentioned earlier, that geologic column presents this rather detailed and specific picture that man came along roughly two million years ago and various animals by evolution in the years that preceded but one has to go very, very far back to find the actual time that this planet developed and evolved. We are told by scientists that Earth is 4.6 billion years old, and in those years, of course, since that time, there's been an increasing evolution of the animals, and that you and I as humans sit at the pinnacle, the zenith of that evolutionary chain. We, though, we already tonight have stated the Bible does not support this geologic column idea. But there is another interesting problem with it that you and I must appreciate as believers in the book of God. It has to do with that age of earth. How old is this planet? Scientists say, again, over four and a half billion years. 
Others, perhaps slightly different, will nonetheless say it numbers at least in the billions. I might submit that we have opportunity tonight to ask the question, does God anywhere tell us how old this planet is? I might submit to you that if God has answered that question, that may in fact speak volumes about whether or not we even could hold out any hope of evolution. Remember uniformitarianism? They tell us that that must have lots and lots of time because the changes are gradual and slow. If the Bible were to tell us the earth is relatively young, there would never have been enough time for evolution. There would never have been nearly a sufficient amount and adequate at that of time for the nature of evolution to have occurred. That's at least a possibility. Let us open the scriptures and let God, if we can do so, see the answer he has provided to the question, how old is this earth? I perhaps should preface this discussion by saying that there are some who will tell us the Bible nowhere identifies how old this planet is, and it is a moot point to even question it. I'd submit I believe that's an erroneous statement. I do think the Bible reveals how old this planet is, and I don't believe we have any reason to question it. Let's, in fact, look at the Scriptures and let God identify what we may see as a potential answer. As we turn back, of course, to Genesis chapter 1, we do read in the very first verse in all the Bible that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. There's the first mention in all the Bible of the earth. We notice that its creation, the bringing of it into being, was therein stated. And as we briefly noted this morning, over the following six days, the Holy Spirit fashioned, organized, and beautified this universe, including planet Earth. At this point, might we notice that on the sixth day of creation, God, of course, fashioned not only the land-dwelling animals, but He also made Adam and Eve. We thus can rightfully say that when we consider the age of Earth, Earth is only five days older than Adam. If you and I can determine how long ago Adam was created and fashioned, we will be within five days of how old this earth is. That seems a straightforward presentation of Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? And so I'd submit to you, let us then ask the question, how long ago was Adam created? If that question can be answered, we have the answer to how old this earth is within five days. As we proceed to look at the answer, the first thing that must now be quickly noted is the character of those days mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. Very many individuals will openly and rather powerfully say that those days were not days in the way you and I think of them today. There are some who claim they were vast eons and ages of time, and thus literally millions, if not billions of years took place between day one and day six in the Genesis chapter one account. That kind of explanation will not do. Notice, if you would, back in Genesis chapter one, let's let the Holy Spirit define what kind of day this was. In Genesis chapter one, verse number five, on that very day in which light was created, the Holy Spirit said, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So this day had an evening and a morning. That sounds very much like the modern kind of a 24-hour day, doesn't it? An evening and a morning. 
But not only was that statement made with respect to day number one, notice also verse number eight. Day number two, and the evening and the morning were the, first, were the second day. Look a little bit further concerning verse 13 in day number three, and the evening and the morning were the third day. A bit further in the chapter, verse number 19, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Notice also verse number 23, and the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Finally, as we appreciate the sixth day, we notice a little bit further in the chapter, verse number 31, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. These days that are herein described, even in the opening chapter, were said to have had an evening and a morning. What kind of sense could be made of thinking that this period of a million years has an evening and a morning? This sounds very much like a 24-hour period of time, having an evening and a morning. But if we still had any doubt, we could note Moses' inspired statement of Exodus 20, verse 11. A bit of background might be useful to remember in light of that verse. This was when God gave the Ten Commandments through Moses to the children of Israel. And as he made reference to the fourth of the Ten Commandments, that commandment which was to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he explained what he meant by that word day. And he, in fact, couched it all the way back to the nature of God's creation. And this is the language that the Holy Spirit used. He said, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Obviously, the word day, as it's used by Moses there, speaking of six days, was the same day referring to the Sabbath that the Jews were to take off from work. They weren't to take a million years off from work. They took one day out of a week, the seventh day, what we call Saturday. Moses said it's a 24-hour period, and God made everything in six days of 24 hours each. It simply will not do to look at those days as anything other than ordinary, regular days that you and I are aware of. With that point somewhat settled, might we look a little bit further and notice the next idea then about Adam. Can we trace now and find the opportune occasion of the date of Adam's origination or when God created him, when life began, if you will, upon this planet? By putting together a few interesting statements, I believe we will have that answer. Let's begin it in these words. First of all, back to that geologic column for a moment. We argued that if that were true, that literally billions of years passed between the time that earth was fashioned and when man ever appeared. Billions of years from the scientific standpoint. Let's ask, does that idea harmonize with the biblical perspective? Maybe we could start in Isaiah 45, 18. On that occasion, that inspired noble prophet of God expressly said that the Lord God formed and fashioned earth to be inhabited. It seems a bit odd. If God had the intent for earth to be inhabited, he fashioned earth and then let a few billion years pass before he put man on it. Doesn't that seem a bit unusual? But as if that idea needed any further standing, notice with me Mark chapter 10 verse 6. In the very heart of the Lord's presentation on the subject of divorce and remarriage, he there said that from the beginning, 
speaking about the nature of man's ability to witness the things about him. Mark chapter 10, verse 6, identified that even from the very beginning, that idea was possible. I'd like us to read that text. The sixth verse of Mark chapter 10. In Jesus' statement, he said, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Notice that Jesus said, From the beginning of the creation. That sounds then like man was here relatively near the very beginning of the creation of all things. For the Lord said, From the beginning of the creation. That certainly doesn't seem to indicate that billions of years passed between the time he fashioned earth and the time man was here. But not only that. Notice also the text found in Romans 1 verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. If it were possible to argue that the male and female reference of Mark 10 verse 6 could include animals, Paul does away with that completely in Romans 1 verse 20. Paul said from the beginning of the creation, there were creatures here capable of appreciating the grandeur and glory of God's creation. Animals may have a great instinctiveness to them, but there's not a single animal that can peer into the heavens and ponder the greatness of God's creation. Not a one of them. And yet Paul said, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, almost from the very beginning there's been a man or someone here who could appreciate it, ponder it, and give him the credit for being the God who made it. There isn't an animal that can do that, but man can. So I'd submit to you that many passages seem to support powerfully the idea men have been here Human beings have been on earth almost from the very outset of the creation. Billions and billions of years did not pass before man arrived. As we inch closer to trying to answer the question, let's begin at the present and work our way backward. We know about how much time has elapsed from now until the time when Jesus walked in the flesh upon this earth. Even our calendar gives us that information. We live in the year 2009 A.D. That A.D. means Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. It's been approximately 2,000 years since Jesus walked upon this earth. Thus, we have the amount of time from now back until then. Let's see if we can ascertain the amount of time from Jesus backward in time to Abraham. I might submit that if we can do that, we will merely add the two numbers together, and that will give us the amount of time from Abraham until now. Again, that question is not hard to answer. There's enough chronological information in the Old Testament that easily allows us to discover that about 2,000 years elapsed from the time of Abraham until the time of Jesus. I've listed a passage or two for your consideration in regard to that one. You might notice, interestingly, in Exodus 12, verse number 40, we are told the length of the duration of the Egyptian captivity. We are told in 1 Kings 6, verse 1, the number of years from the Exodus until the building of Solomon's temple. So we can add them together and then add the time from Solomon's temple till now. And we are awfully close until the time of Abraham. We know David lived at about 1,000 B.C., and thus, putting those together, it's about 2,000 years. Thus, 
about 4,000 years have elapsed from the time of Abraham until now. Abraham walked this planet about 4,000 years ago. But now, we have one final piece to the puzzle. As we have a sought to work backward, let's now ask, can we ascertain the amount of time from Abraham back to Adam? We are told in 1 Corinthians 15.45 that Adam was the first man. So if we can find the amount of time from Abraham back to Adam, adding that to the 4,000 years we've already deduced, we will be within five days of the age of this planet. Let's see if we can ascertain the final piece to that puzzle. How many years passed from Adam to Abraham? I might submit to you that we have a great deal of difficulty finding that answer based on secular history simply because the flood happened and destroyed all the records that would have existed. Thankfully, we need not rely upon extra-biblical written records. The Old Testament gives us that answer. In our studies on Sunday morning, for example, do you recall in Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11, there were some lengthy genealogies given. And when we looked at those genealogies, we noticed that the age of the father when his son was born was given. All we need to do then is turn to those two chapters and add up those ages, and we will be able to go from Abraham all the way back to Adam. And we will, in fact, have the answer to our question. In fact, if you want to pull back out the notes that we looked about, looked at then, you can find that answer. I have gone ahead and written it for you. It's about 2,000 years. Thus, when we take the 4,000 we had already deduced and add it to that, we can confidently say that the earth can be only somewhere at most between around 6,300 and 7,000 years. And that's it. The Bible will not allow an earth older than that. Otherwise, one runs into conflict with the chronologies presented in the Old Testament. You see, earth is not aged in the billions of years. It isn't even aged in the millions of years. Not even the hundreds of thousands of years. Earth's age is relatively young. That information, as we see from the Word of God, reminds us of the power and the truth of what God has revealed, even on the point of geology. The age of earth is but one token that we can use to summarize our lesson this evening. The encouraging character of a study in science is always upbuilding when we see the Word of God harmonize with it. But by that same token, when we come to a study of earth and that study of geology, it's so sad to consider the evolutionary baggage that's often dragged along with it. Tonight, we've looked at three things that seem to greatly cause problems for this geologic time scale. On the one hand, we noted the fact of catastrophism is taught in the Bible, not uniformitarianism. Secondly, we noticed that the fossil record of life supports the biblical claim, far more so than it does the evolutionary one. And then lastly, we've looked at the age of this planet, and we have found that it isn't anywhere close to 4.6 billion years. It's numbered, in fact, well less than 10,000 years, for that's all the age it can be fit into the beautiful record of the Old Testament truth. Perhaps in closing, it might be stated that there are some who call into question those genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11. They say that there were vast numbers of people who lived in between the records that are given. That, too, is not terribly acceptable. 
because one New Testament writer harmonized with this idea. In Jude verse 14, Jude said that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. When we turn back to the Old Testament and start looking through the genealogy, Enoch was the seventh from Adam. There were no gaps apparently in the first seven generations at all. It's unthinkable that then in the next 13 generations that there could have been an amount of time numbering into the millions or even hundreds of thousands of years. The earth, my friend, is much, much younger than geologists so often tell us. The earth is young because the Bible says so. As we've looked at this matter in science tonight in geology, may we base our life on the bedrock truth of the wonder of God's Word. If you're not a Christian tonight, you need to become one. If you've never thus obeyed the Lord, though you've reached the age of knowing that you should, don't delay any longer. Hasten, in fact, and let that take place tonight. You need to hear the gospel, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and then be baptized. If those things have not yet been accomplished, take heed to them and address those matters at once. If you have become a Christian but have not been faithful to that calling, don't allow that state of affairs to remain. Come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5, and thus enjoy the marvelous wonder of the fellowship with God Himself. If we could be of assistance to you tonight, don't delay, but let us know by way of a public statement, even now while together we stand and while we sing.